0: So last Sunday, uh, we began a new spiritual vitality series focusing on holiness with Pastor Chris walking us through Hezekiah's consecration of the temple and the Jewish people in Second Chronicles. We learned that to consecrate means to set something apart or someone apart for holiness unto the Lord. And the term consecration uh, also means sanctification. And the two can be used interchangeably. And so when we read these terms in Scripture... We can remember that they are referring to a life lived separated from a sinful world and dedicated unto God. But the question we need to grapple with today is how are we going to practically live this separation out as Christians? No doubt all of us have taken a look around our world and have noticed an incredible contrast between God's ways and the world's ways. So to see uh, what God's word has to say about this, we're going to be turning in the first uh, epistle of the book of Peter. And so would you stand with me together as we corporately read God's word. We're going to be reading from uh, chapter 1, verse 1 to verse 2, and then jumping over to 13, verse 16. In one voice. Ready? Let's read. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect... Exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Therefore, holy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. On this cold Sunday morning, we are here and we want to hear from you. Father, thank you that you speak and you work uniquely and especially in the hearts and lives of those who hear your word. And I pray, God, this morning that you would help me and that you would speak through your word in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. You can grab a seat. So as his name indicates, the book uh, uh, that we're we're tackling here was written by the disciple and apostle Peter. Forgiven for his betrayal and receiving a renewed call to service by his Lord, Peter quickly becomes one of the most influential uh, leaders in the formative stages of the early church. His letter addresses a mixed group of believers who are living in a non, 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 non-Christian cultures. They were Jewish and Gentile Christians, men and women, young and old, all of whom were experiencing social challenges in their lives as they tried to navigate what it meant to live like Christians in a very unchristian and often hostile environment. These believers were scattered throughout the Roman provinces, as we read, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, which is the region of modern-day Turkey, uh, in, in, in modern-day western and central Turkey. Now, we don't know exactly how these believers came to faith in Jesus Christ, but there is a good chance that they could have been a part of the converted pilgrims at Pentecost. And you might have remembered that in the book of Acts. Peter preaches, and on one day, there's 3,000 believers, as well as a lot more that comes even after that. Or perhaps these people would have been influenced by the gospel message through the missionary endeavors of Paul and his companions. However they came to faith, Peter describes these believers as exiles scattered throughout the Roman world. Now he uses familiar Old Testament language that would help give them some context to what they were facing. Now you might remember that the Jewish people had a history of being exiled. During the years of 607 to 586 BC, the Jews were regularly taken captive by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And for nearly 70 years, they were in exile. And in that that foreign land, far away from the temple and the center of religious life, they were left to sort out how to properly live lives of worship in their new pagan environment. Now, Peter isn't isn't writing as one removed from the challenges they were facing. In fact, Peter is actually writing from Rome herself where the outbreak started during Nero's persecution. So he could relate to the tension of living righteously in a righteously and socially antagonistic environment. And Peter seeks to bring encouragement, hope and comfort to these people. By providing principles for Christian living in an alien culture. While reminding his audience that like Abraham, they did not have a permanent residence or citizenship, on this earth. And like Israel, they were dispersed among the godless and often hostile peoples. What, important, what an important truth this is, and reminder for us this morning. See, Christians are resident aliens, scattered throughout the world as representatives of a different kingdom. See friends, we have a home, as Philippians 3.20 points out, we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. And we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. And friends, until then, we are on mission. I love the way Malcolm Muggeridge put it. He says, Christians are God's special agents behind enemy lines. Friends, you are a special agent for God in this world. And indeed, these people that Peter's writing to are very special, as he points out. But what made them special wasn't anything in and of themselves or what they had done. Instead, it was something special that God had done to them. See, they were ordinary people. But the special thing about them was that they were object of God's choice and election. And let me take a moment to clarify what this means. The term chosen became a term for identifying God's people in the early church. And the idea idea behind it comes from the Old Testament. And God had chosen Israel from among the nations of the world to be his special people. And it wasn't anything attractive about them or special within them, but because he loved them with a love which was undeserved. It was, see, friends, it, was all, it all stemmed from God, not them. And even so, biblical history reveals that Israel very often got it wrong and misunderstood what God's choice implied. They had thought of it too lightly, often merely as a privilege, without realizing the responsibilities that came along with it. But God, in his mercy, sent prophet after prophet to remind his people of the significance of their election and called them to a place of action and to fulfill his purpose in choosing because they were supposed to be the, the redeemed people to reflect him through the nations around them. And with such an Old Testament backdrop, Peter uses this term to remind his readers that although most of them were Gentiles, they now also belong to the people of God. And that they have entered into this inheritance of God's people with a share both in its glorious privileges and in its responsibilities. See, we know from chapter 4 in 1 Peter that Peter's readers had a colorful past. They used to be unbelievers, living like everybody else around them. And Peter brings this to their attention when he says, You had had enough in the past of the evil things that godless people enjoy. that he lists them, their immorality and lust, their feasting and drunkenness, and wild parties, and their terrible worship of idols. Of course your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things they do. So they slander you. But remember, they will have to face God who stands ready to judge everyone, both the living and the dead. No doubt Peter writes this because they were feeling the pressure to be like everyone else around them. See, nearly 2,000 years later, we can also relate, can't we? It's easier to blend in, isn't it, than to stand out for righteousness, It's easier to go with the flow than to go against it, isn't it? It's harder to stand out of the crowd than be with the crowd. And recognizing their temptation to compromise, Peter reminds them, live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living, friends, to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. For you know now that God paid a ransom to save you. And we sang about that this morning, didn't we? God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life that you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value, but the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Slipping back into their old way of life was not an option for them as believers. So how are they going to stay on task? I can just picture someone in the audience placing up their hand and saying, you know, and asking the important question, how do we live this out, Peter? We're experiencing pressures all around us to conform. We're regularly experiencing temptation after temptation, both internally and externally. Peter, it's tough, it's tough to live for God in a world that is so different it's tough to live for holiness when all of our neighbors, our coworkers, our classmates, and even maybe our families live like God doesn't exist. Can you relate to any of this? See, my guess is this morning that most of us can. Perhaps you've been struggling with compromise because you wonder, what is it worth? It's just too hard. Or, Pastor, why should I even care about changing any of my behaviors? Isn't God just a God of love who will forgive me for anything I do? Like a genie in a bottle. I do what I want to do, and I ask him for forgiveness, and it's all okay. See, friends, holiness is not a popular topic nowadays. There aren't many New York Times bestsellers touting holiness. You know, from what I can tell, the the topic is, is, is missing in much of preaching today as well. It's probably because it's, 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 it's not the best topic for church growth. But did you know that the word holy occurs 700 times in Scripture? But actually, pardon me, it's 600 times. But when you include sanctity and sanctification, it's over 700 times. And one of the most frightening verses in the entire Bible is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, particularly the final phrase. And it says it's best in the New King James Version. It says, Pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I'm not sure about you, but I I want to see God. And the author's words here in Hebrews are a command, they're not merely a suggestion. He's telling his audience to pursue christ like this, for without ongoing transformation into the image of Christ, a sinner has no rightful claim on the grace of God. Friends, as Christians, our pursuit of holiness and the work of sanctification in our lives is not an option. And this is why Peter, aware of the trials and pressures his readings were facing as believers in a hostile land. Remember, he's also in Rome. He knows what it's like. Tradition tells us that actually Peter uh, went to his death in Rome under the persecution of Nero, hung upside down. He knows what it's like. And he writes them before he dies. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform. Turn to your neighbor and say, conform. To the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy. Turn to your neighbor and say, holy. Holy. So be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Now let me, let me do my best to explain uh, what sanctification is in a nutshell. See, sanctification is both an instantaneous event and an ongoing process in our lives. The very moment a person believes in Christ and has worked for them on the cross, that person is sanctified in the sense that he or she is separated from sin, uh, from sin and separated unto God. And from this privileged state, We grow, out of there we grow in Christ-likeness. Not from outside of that, but within that we grow in Christ-likeness because positionally we are made right and we are separated unto God. See, but I'm sure all of us in this room have tried to be good at one time or another. We wake up in the morning and we commit to ourselves that we're going to be nice and treat others well. But before we even get to work, we find ourselves having lost it on our kids and yelling at the guy in front of us as he's driving because he's not going fast enough in the left lane. See, friends, the good news here is that sanctification is a joint effort. It's an ongoing cooperative process in which believers who are regenerated, which is another fancy theological word meaning alive to God and free from sin's mastery, are intentional about their ongoing obedience to God. See, Peter, of course, knows all of this. And that's why in verse 2, he has already said that our obedience to Jesus is the result of the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And at the same time, it's our job to yield in God, to God in obedience in order for the purity to follow. So how do we do this? Well, I love the way Peter puts it, instructing his audience to have minds that are alert and fully sober. You know, the King James says things way better. It says this, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober. Now, this language is totally foreign to us because most of us don't wear long flowing robes in our culture today. If you do, good for you. Actually, you know... Our fearless leader is is in the part of the world that this is actually quite quite prevalent. So perhaps, Pastor Chris, if you're listening to this, as an illustration at some point, would you mind taking a selfie of yourself with a long flowing garb as an illustration? It'll help our sanctification. No pressure. So Peter's hearers, though, would have understood what he meant, since they, they wore robes and knew that unless they tucked it up under their belt, they wouldn't do, be able to do the physical work properly without it getting in the way. And this is just like you and me today. We roll up our sleeves before we wash the dishes, or we shove, actually, no, we don't roll up our sleeves when we shovel the, s- the snow, because we're just too cold, right? You know, maybe when we cut the grass, or we do, lo- you know, some sort of gardening, or anything like that, maybe we roll up our sleeves, but... We, do, we, we understand this, and this is what Peter is saying. He's basically saying, roll up your sleeves, folks, because you have an important part to play in holiness. And Peter continues, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. Clearly, friends, it's God's expectation that his children reflect the family characteristic of holiness instead of their former lifestyle. When I read this, I can't help but wonder, can people see the difference in me? Can they see the difference in you? I love the way that J.C. Ryle puts it. We must be holy because this is the only sound evidence that we are true children of God. Children in this world are generally like their parents. Some, doubtless, are more so and some less. But it is seldom indeed that you cannot trace a kind of family likeness. And it is the same with the children of God. See, I come from a a, a very large family. There are six kids in in my family and we're all pretty crazy. But we, we don't look alike. But get us in a room or talk to us separately And you'll certainly realize that we're cut from the same cloth. And chances are, you are as well. There are traits within you that are like your parents. Kids, whether you like it or not, you are like your parents. (laughs) You know, let me ask you this morning. Do you think your neighbors, your friends, your classmates at school, your coworkers would recognize your heavenly father in you? if we would ask them? See, I'm sure Peter's audience had to think about it like that as well. And just in case his readers forgot why they were to be holy, Peter's quick to recall in his opening salutation the believer's motivation toward holiness and obedience He speaks of the obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling with his blood. This here is a clear reference to the story of the making of the covenant between God and Israel. In Exodus chapter 24, after God had delivered his chosen people from Egypt at Sinai, he gave to them the law. Moses gathered the people from an, uh, for an important ceremony and where he had made a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice, and sprinkled them with the blood with the same animal which he had poured onto the altar, signifying a reconciliation between God and the people. And in which a clear commitment to obedience was given uh, by the people prior to their sprinkling. We've all seen or been to a wedding ceremony, right? You know, this is very similar. There is this point where there is this exchange of vows between the two parties. And the husband and wife both say, I take you, so-and-so, to be my husband and wife, to have and to hold this day forward for better and worse, for richer, poorer, in sicknesses and health, to love and to cherish until death do us part. It's a lot of words. So in that ceremony... Between God and the people. God said, here's what I'm committing to in writing. And he gives them the law through Moses. Then the people in turn said, yes, God, we love that. We'll accept this. We're good with it. We'll do our part to obey what's required. But before the ceremony was over, Moses takes some of the blood from the animal sacrifice and starts sprinkling it over the people. As a symbol of their cleansing and commitment to God. Could you imagine if we did that at a wedding ceremony today? That video would go viral, I'm sure. <laughs> let me ask you, let me ask you a question. If you were a believer, do you remember the time when you came to know the forgiving power of God in your life personally? And then let me ask you, are you still living in light of what you've been saved from? Do you remember where you were? Do you remember what God did for you? Are you living in light of that? Friends, our indebtedness to Jesus for salvation is the most powerful of all motivations for living in obedience to Jesus. In July 19. 41, a prisoner escaped from Auschwitz, the concentration camp. And as a punishment, the Gestapo selected 10 men arbitrarily to die in a starvation bunker. And one of the men selected, his name was Francis Geovnichik. And when he was selected, he cried out. He said, oh, my poor wife and my children, they'll never see me again. And at that moment, a little guy A Polish man in glasses, wire frames, stepped out at a line and he took off his cap and he said, Look, I'm a Catholic priest, so I don't have a wife or children. He said, I would like to die instead of that man. To everyone's amazement, his offer was accepted and he was taken to the starvation bunker. And on August 14th, he was the last one to die. He kept an amazing atmosphere, apparently. He got them singing, and and there was hymns and praying. It was so cool. But on the 14th of August, they needed the bunker for other people. And they gave him a lethal injection of carbolic acid, and that's how he died. And 41 years later, his death was put in its proper perspective. There in the crowd of 150,000 people, 26 cardinals, 300 archbishops and bishops at St. Peter's Square in Rome, in that crowd was Francis Gaevnicik. And the Pope said on that occasion about his death, the death of Maximilian Kolbe. That Polish 47-year-old priest who stepped forward to give his life, that was a victory like the one won by our Lord Jesus Christ because he gave himself, he gave himself up out of love. See, Francis Gajowna died at the age of 93. And he spent the rest of his life going around telling everybody, with the love of this man who died in his place. In an even more wonderful way, Jesus died in your place and my place. The Son of God loved me and you so much that he came down and gave himself up for us. Friends, we live in a world that is full of compromise. A world that is, that is constantly redefining what is right and wrong. And it's so easy for those of us who call ourselves Christ followers to be more similar to the world around us than the one who died for us. See, some of us have gotten more accustomed to this home than the one built for us in Glory. Let me talk to you, teens, for a second. Is your music selection and your mu- and your movie choices, or your friends, uh, forming your thought life more than God Himself? College and university students, is your worldview being shaped more by the classes you are taking at school than the Lord you are claiming to be serving? Adults, are you being shaped more by the news you are watching than the Bible you are carrying? As you can tell from this passage this morning, this is not a new problem for believers. Our natural inclination is to become like the environment around us. So how do we realign ourselves and get back to that place of pursuit of holiness? Well, one, we remember what Christ has done for us. And friends, that's why we remember, we come monthly, we come, we remember what Jesus has done on the cross. is not just another thing to fill the service. It's a reminder to us to be able to be thankful for all that God has done for us. Because he's taken wretched people and he's made them right. Friends, I'm in that category too. We remember what God has done for us. And not just at communion, but daily even as Pastor Joel said earlier. What else do we do? We roll up our sleeves and remain alert. Friends, this is an active pursuit of holiness. This isn't a passive thing. We we are diligent to remain exposed to the teaching of scriptures through, through Bible study and church attendance. Friends, this is so important. I get it. Life is busy. I get it. But friends, ultimately, what's the most important thing in your life? How are you going to see Jesus? Are you going to be giving them excuses? Or you and I are going to be able to say, God, I was faithful. See, friends, in our day and age today, it's so easy to put other things in front. I'm so thankful. I'm preaching to the choir. You're here this morning. And I'm glad you are. Because as you hear God's word, it shapes you. It challenges you. If, it doesn't, if you don't say, ouch, at some point, it's, you know, you're not listening. But it's, it's good for us. It's good for us. Bible study, small groups. That's why Pastor Kim focuses so much on these. We're a revelation series and Bible engagements. We don't just do this for the sake of it. It's to help the body of Christ be equipped so that they can know and be like God. And thirdly, we allow God's spirit to sanctify us. We open ourselves up to that process as we obey Jesus. In closing, I just wanted to mention that if you're here this morning and you find yourself having wandered off from the righteousness that you know God would have for you, there is grace and there's forgiveness. The question to you this morning is will you receive it? Will you humble yourself to say God, here I am, I need you. And it would be our pleasure to be able to pray with you. If there'll be a team of workers of, of prayer, the prayer team that are gonna be at the front this morning. Don't pass up the opportunity to make yourself right before God. As I close, I'd like to reread our passage in 1 Peter. With a slight revision, I hope you forgive me, to fit our own setting and provide us with the appropriate challenge. Says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect. Exiles scattered throughout the Waterloo region in Waterloo, Kitchener, and Cambridge who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. But with minds that are always alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed that is coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. Let's pray.